Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. Uh, we have a guest on the show today, uh, uh, Matthew Ho. And Matthew was a decorated captain in the Marine Corps and then worked in the State Department as part of the uh, Provincial Reconstruction Team in Afghanistan. And uh, back in 2009, Matt came out and blew the whistle on the Afghan surge when you know there was a big public relations campaign from the Pentagon to uh, force Obama into escalating the war in Afghanistan, uh, Matthew uh, heroically came out and publicly said, do not do this, it's not gonna work. And uh, spoiler alert, they, they still did do it. Uh, Matthew, how's it going today? Uh, we, we appreciate you joining us. Good, thank you for having me here, guys. Hey, Matt, how hard is it for you not to go around screaming, I told you so all day long? I'm thinking maybe you should get it tattooed on you somewhere. Uh, you know, it, it's actually, there's really, uh, there, there's there's not really any joy in it, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. particularly because maybe if um, those who had pushed these wars, sustained them, lied about them, you know, cheer-led for them, maybe if they were getting some form of justice, like, you know, a lot of the, uh, uh, generals, uh, politicians, media figures, think tankers, you know, if they were in stocks right now in the public square, yeah, you know, I'd be happy to walk in front of them and, 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 and smack them in the face or whatever, and, and, <laughs> and right? But they're not. They're not. They're, 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 I mean, there's no justice. Um, it's just a, a, a tragedy of, of proportions that, you know, here in the U.S., we can't imagine. Um, when I speak to international audiences, sometimes they can get it, you know. Um, uh, I, I spoke to a Japanese uh, reporter uh, recently, as well as a, a Spanish reporter, and, you know, I, I said, I, I think you can understand what Afghanistan has been like because of your own experience with the wars, with, you know, World War II or the Spanish Civil War and the devastation that it brought uh, right. to your countries, you know. And But just imagine even cases of... of, of uh, the Japanese uh, say, you know, where the Japanese, it was really just a, a few years where the Japanese people were affected directly in the term of, in terms of, you know, United States air attacks against the, the homeland, the Japanese homeland. Mm-hmm. You know, this has been 40 plus years of war in Afghanistan. So, uh, I mean, the the the, the, uh, the 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 catastrophe and the tragedy of this is just so immense. It's, it's unimaginable. So, yeah. but no, I, I certainly... I certainly do fantasize. I mean, I fantasize about, you know, these people in D.C., especially or in London, um, receiving some form of justice of, of, of some form of vengeance being taken upon them. Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't be human if I said otherwise. But, yeah, no, it, it is really, really nothing to um, be happy about at this point. Yeah, I feel that. Well, and and yeah. you know, maybe just 
shedding some light on the on the issue is is the best way for us to you know go towards some semblance of justice. Uh, Matt, if you could just take us back to 2009 and just tell us what you were doing in Afghanistan and, and uh, why you ended up resigning in protest. Yeah, um, I was a, a, a foreign service officer as a political officer. I had received a direct appointment into the foreign service because I have worked with the State Department uh, before uh, as a consultant and as well as a Department of Defense official. I've been on uh, State Department teams in Iraq uh, from 04 to 05 and then uh, as a consulting on the Iraq desk after that. And um, so, you know, and I had spent 10 years in the Marine Corps as well, um, including one time as a Marine Corps company commander in Iraq. Uh, yeah, so I end up in, our, in Afghanistan in 09. In, in, I get there in April of 09 as part of the escalation of the war. I mean, people are very familiar with um, uh, the, the, the surge of Afghanistan in the fall of 2009 and debate around that. What's always so interesting to me is that hardly or there is very little discussion about the, um, the, the, the preliminary, preliminary escalation of the war prior to that discussion and the fact that Barack Obama actually sent more troops, uh, you know, in the first half of uh, 2009 than he did in the second half. So that whole great discussion of the surge in Afghanistan results in, you know, Barack Obama sending 30,000 uh, more U.S. troops. You know, he goes to West Point December of 2009, makes that big speech, sends 30,000 more troops after months of public uh, discussion and debate and, and theater. Uh, but prior to that, he had sent about 40,000 more troops with hardly with any discussion. Um, you know, and, and that culminates too, I think, in what I'm seeing right now in a lot of the commentary, just the, the uh, either uh, uh, ignorance uh, that is uh, uh, sincere or willful about how big uh, this war actually was, this feeling that somehow we didn't try hard enough uh, in the Afghan war, when the reality was is that within a year of Barack Obama taking office, a year and a half within Barack Obama taking office, uh, there is a 250 million man Western army in Afghanistan, 100,000 US troops, 40,000 NATO troops, and over 100,000 contractors. So just to kind of, uh, you know, remind people where the war was at that point. The, the decision point by the administration to escalate the war. And I had gone to Afghanistan um, after being in Iraq twice, being um, already morally and intellectually broken at that point. Um, you know, uh, drinking heavily. Uh, you know, being suicidal. Uh, you know, and, and really a, a real conflict within me in terms of. Uh, my participation in these wars and continuing to do so, but thinking that Afghanistan was a different war than Iraq, as well as that somehow that the Obama administration would pursue these wars differently than the Bush administration did. And I get to uh, Afghanistan in 09 as a political officer, thinking that I would be doing things similar to what had been done in Iraq in 06 and 07 in terms of uh, answering the grievances of the Sunnis that fueled so much of the insurgency in Iraq. Um, you know, that culminated with the Anbar awakening and the Sons of Iraq and the, the very real drop in violence that occurred that was temporary, but that did occur from 2007, you know, through about 2011, 2012. Um, you know, I, I thought that's what we were going to be doing, that we were going to be speaking to the Taliban, trying to bring about a political solution um, as we had sort of done, temporarily had done in Iraq with the Sunni insurgency. Um, but 
it didn't take me very long being in, in Afghanistan to see that that was not the case. The, uh, the war in Afghanistan was fundamentally no different than the war in Iraq. Um, you could sit, we could sit here all day and just kind of come up with uh, what are the what are what, what are the differences between Iraq and Afghanistan? You know, and, and you know all the different ways they are different. But the reality is, as long as it as that either nation was occupied by the U.S. military, where the goal was simply military victory, there was no other differences that mattered between the countries. Um, and the fact that, yeah, again, with, with the Obama administration, it was fundamentally no different than the Bush administration as it was seeking military victory in Afghanistan for the sake of, of, of domestic politics, of, of, for the glory of the presidency, basically. So well, after what, being what there makes five Iraq months, I resigned. In- What's that? I'm sorry. But what makes Iraq and Afghanistan different? And by no means am I trying to say the the war in Iraq was a success, but at the very least, as, as far as like uh, metrics are concerned, the government that you know we put in power, the Shia, essentially Shia chauvinist government we put in power, is still the government in Iraq. And um, I mean, the government we put in power in Afghanistan is uh, gone. So, like, why? What were the major differences, and, and why was that? You know. Uh, state able to survive and the uh, Afghan state that we propped up not able to survive? Well, I, I think um, you did not have a, a, a destruction of the Iraqi government um, the way that the Afghan government had been destroyed in the 1990s, a very purposeful destruction via civil war and foreign manipulation, foreign involvement you know, by the United States, the Pakistanis, the, the, the Indians to a degree, the, the Saudis, you know, the Iranians were involved as well, you know, after, you know, there's a big mistake, there's a very, very serious mistake and flaw in so much of the commentary uh, in the United States about Afghanistan. So much of that goes back to that terrible movie, Charlie Wilson's War. I mean, hey, it's an enjoyable movie, Tom Hanks, it's great. However, in terms of that's how you, what you understand about Afghanistan, that's where your history lesson is. You know, you're for a very rude awakening if you ever actually, you know, read something else or, or talk to an Afghan. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, the main, the main thing about Charlie Wilson's war that is so wrong is at the end, he, he, Tom Hanks is sta- standing on the balcony with, I forget who he's standing on the balcony with, you know, in the film, but he says like how the whole point is about how we, we're abandoning in Afghanistan uh, and the foreshadowing of what was going to occur, of course, with 9-11. The reality was we did not invade in Afghanistan when the Soviet Union left. The United States stayed in Afghanistan uh, along with the Saudis, the Pakistanis, etc., and, and spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars every year up until 1992 when the communist government failed to destroy the communist government. Um, and to the point, the destruction of the communist government being the sole... Um, uh, being the primary desire of the American government, not the not the replacement of the government with some kind of interim government or something, like that, but rather just we need to destroy this communist government so that we have final victory. Um, and then that, that of course leads into the the terrible uh, inner fighting between the Mujahideen groups that result in the desolation of any type of government structure in Afghanistan. And it also had been more or less a very decentralized. Um, uh, a very rudimentary, uh, incapable government structure to begin with. I mean, that's one of the reasons in Afghanistan you have these uh, uh, this political tension that becomes a war 
uh, is because there are those in Afghanistan who want to build Afghanistan, who want to, you know, they're, they're, we would call them now socialists and communists, but they're, they're, much of their intention was to build, bring Afghanistan into the modern world. Afghanistan had no infrastructure, had no industry, you know, it had no schools uh, in the 1970s. So when the king is overthrown in 1973, that is part of it. And that thus begins a really uh, great rural uh, urban conflict, you know, secular versus religious, modern versus traditional, however you want to frame it, conflict. Um, you know, so you, you, I think that's one of the primary differences you have between Iraq and Afghanistan is that they really, in 2001, you're really rebuilding um, a government from ashes. From, I mean, because even when the Taliban had been in control of most of the country for five years at that point, they really were not, um, uh, I mean, no one was going to uh, 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 confuse the Taliban, uh, you know, it, it for, for uh, uh, you know, you know, any type of government that was out there providing services for the people, you know, I mean, so the United States, when it went into Afghanistan, was really trying to um, and, and took this attitude that it was rebuilding things from scratch where, yeah, the, the, there was there was an absence of infrastructure and there was a, an absence of mechanisms and there certainly was an absence of a central government that could deliver things to the people. However, there have been traditional means things were done and there have been successful ways for things to be have been done. And certainly building an, a, 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 a government and a society and infrastructure and civil society, et cetera, in the midst of a civil war that you are, you know, as the United States is uh, actively, uh, uh, actively promoting, you know, particularly through its divide and conquer strategy that it had in Afghanistan. Um, there's no way you're going to build anything. Iraq, of course, is different because when the United States goes into Iraq in 03, the um, while it chases away and destroys much of the human capital within Iraq, at least the physical presence, the physical infrastructure, the bureaucratic infrastructure, the mechanisms of government are still in place. So um, I, I think that was part of it. And you also had a... Um, a, a, a the difference between the people that the U.S. put in power in both countries, I think, is, is crucial, too. I think with, with Iraq, the United States puts in power these, these Shia, um, Shia political parties, many of them, not most of them, um, aligned with Iran, backed by Iran, controlled by Iran, basically. But these political power parties that are interested in taking power and uh, exercising power. While, you know, and then delivering based upon their ideology, right, based upon their, their political premises, based upon, um, you know, they wanted control, but they also wanted to be the government and do what government does. In Afghanistan, what we put in power was uh, uh, warlords and drug lords. We built a kleptocracy. We built a, 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 a government of, of thieves. Uh, you know, many people this past week have been talking about uh, Sarah Chase's book, State of Thieves, which describes, I think, pretty well who we put in power in Afghanistan. So, you know, another, you know, that was a difference there, just in the sense of that we put, uh, 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 you know, thieves, warlords, war criminals, thugs, drug lords as the power base in Afghanistan in control of the government that was trying to be built. And so that was just built out as a mechanism to feed these people so that they, they could steal, so that they could prey upon people. While in Afghanistan, the, the people we put in power, by no means uh, saints, 
but at least were filling a government that had a shell and had some interest in providing services, fulfilling the functions of government. Not saying that the Iraqi government isn't corrupt as all get out, it certainly is. It's just that the, um, the, the people uh, uh, in power had at least a, a, a desire to um, uh, exercise the, the, the functions of government uh, you know, for the purposes of, of control, but also understanding that we need to deliver services in order to maintain this control, while in Afghanistan it was just, it was just complete looting. Well, can you go over some examples of uh, of corruption that you know you saw in the Afghan government when you know when you were on the because you were in the State Department on the on the we were construction team. So, um, did you ever see any kind of like fraud in terms of like stuffing ballast or just um, any type of like financial fraud? Like what what exactly was going on? Because um, uh, I guess I'm just yeah. trying to realize the scope of the corruption and the rot in the Afghan government. Oh, it was, you know, I mean, it was, it was, again, it was, it was built as a kleptocracy. It was built to, to feed uh, the greed and the profit of warlords and drug lords. I mean, that was the purposes of it. I mean, just in the sense even, and, and that's how so much of the governments had been sort of before. Uh, I mean, there's not a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the communist government in the 1980s, um, comparably not as corrupt uh, as the government of the last two decades, but still, in many ways, was not seen by particularly people in the rural areas as a government, you know, for the people, you know, um, and you could, so, and then certainly under the king, um, the, uh, uh, the king ruled in a very decentralized manner for 40 some odd years, uh, and large, by and large, kept the peace, but there were certainly people were paying up what they needed to pay up to keep their positions as you know as, as tribal leaders as regional leaders as 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 as, as for their, their control of provinces cities villages etc but with what i saw personally in terms of how corrupt this government was which just amazingly corrupt uh yeah i mean with with, with the elections i ended up uh, i was there for the 2009 presidential elections i ended up at an afghan army base that day i can't even remember how why i was over there um, but I was, and there was supposed to be no uh, election material, balloting, anything going on on the army bases. And literally in the room I was sitting in, there was uh, like two large uh, folding tables with probably three or four ballot boxes on them each. And I'm just sitting there watching the Afghan soldiers put ballots into them. You know, um, complete, completely unconcerned that I'm there. I mean, the, the, the scope of the fraud, the whole election had been... Um, the whole election had been set up in such a way that uh, there was going to be no oversight, that there was going to be no control on it. Um, you know, people, who are they voting for? <laughs> they're Karzai, Hamid Karzai. Yeah, 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 Hamid Karzai. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, what you had was, so you had that. And, and that's a lot of the way with the corruption, it was just set up. It was fundamentally built into the systems of government, right? I mean, so... In uh, the mechanisms and the things that were supposedly controls. So one of the things about why these these ballot boxes were on this Afghan army post was because this was even though there was a, there was thousands of in, of independent election observers from all around the world who came, um, their ability to uh, watch the election process 
seemed, if you read it uh, up front, seemed like, oh, pretty good. We're going to have election observers at all the polling stations and stuff like that. But the, but there were never any election observers once the balloting was over and those ballot boxes were then moved to an area where they're going to be counted and everything. I mean, that was all considered, that was all, uh, and the way it was phrased was that this way that the ballot boxes are under lock and key, no one will interfere, no one will see it, no one will be present. But basically what it did was they were basically excluding any oversight at all at that point, keeping the ballot boxes hidden from the world. Uh, in between the stages of voting and counting, you had, you know, this mass ballot stuffing and this, this, this you know, and, and it was all done very openly in that sense, because this is part of the process. Right. You were going to have this, 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 you know, where where even election observers won't need to be there because this is going to be such a pure control process. It can't be tainted. Well, except for the fact that the people actually running the election are the people who want to win the election. There is no, you know, and they would be called the Afghan Independent Election Commission. And, and the idea that it was independent, you know, it, it's a, it, we see this a lot. Right. We, we say it's one thing, whether, you know, whether it be, um, uh, you know, regardless of, of who it is, who is in power, they, they'll, they'll say one thing and, and it sounds good. The rhetoric is there. But of course, the reality is something else. You know, the same thing, too, with, say, the um, the construction, the, the process for bidding on construction and, um, uh, uh, a bit, you know, reconstruction and, 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 and rebuilding efforts and that kind of thing. And the province I was in, 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 in Zabal province, when they had uh, this uh, a day where contractors came in to bid on work, um, I was not allowed to be present for it, even though it was all American dollars that were being utilized. Uh, the Afghan government was the only ones who were allowed to be there. And it was framed as this way we're keeping the process pure. This way it's a purely independent Afghan government process. I mean, you had this a lot, like that corruption that was just, it was just built in, right? So, you know, exactly, this is what happened. The governor ran this and whoever said they were going to give the most money to the governor got the project. That's how the bidding worked. I mean, it was clear. And one of the things that was done, though, was that, yeah, anyone who might have uh, been a witness to it was excluded. And honest to God, the U.S. Embassy would cheer that this is the right way to do it. You see the Afghans are doing it themselves, that, that this, is a, this is a way to maintain integrity. You know, there are no outsiders involved. There's no bias. There's no, you know, on and, on. and this, this even extends to this idea that somehow um, the Afghan government, again, a, a government built, by, built with warlords and drug lords at the very top, um, you know, so the whole thing, again, was going to be just a feeding mechanism for them. Um, you know, I mean, even, even when it came time to deal with negotiations with the insurgency, which could have occurred in 2009, it could have occurred all this time. I mean, when I was in Afghanistan, uh, we had the Taliban in the east, in, 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 in Kunar and in Nangarhar province, uh, the Taliban up there came in wanting to talk to us in 2009. And, and when I was in the south of Afghanistan, in Zabul, uh, Taliban interlocutors met with me. You know, and the message was basically, look, we're, we're tired of fighting our grandfather's fought or father's fought. We're fighting. Our sons are fighting. We don't want our grandsons to fight, but we're not going to surrender. You know, and the, my response when I would turn around to the embassy with this was simply, again, this is an independent, you know, it's, this is for the Afghans to handle. Right. That that this is um, this is a question of, of reconciliation is an Afghan only question is up to the Afghan government to handle this. 
you know, with this idea that somehow the Afghan government is this pure uh, uh, government of democratic virtue that is somehow going to address these things in a manner that is best for the Afghan people. You know, the reality, right, is that like, okay, we're propping up and keeping in power this klept kleptocracy. Um, they would be the last ones of anyone to negotiate away any of this gravy train they are on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and but that was the response to us was this whole charade of, well, of you know, basically kind of like covering our eyes and ears and, and making pretend was, it's not happening just because we say it's not happening. I was just I mean, going to so ask saw, the same. You saw that over and over and over again. I was just going to ask the same question. Like, it, is this, you know, as far as our involvement in this whole process, is this willful ignorance or is this just abject uh, incompetence? Uh, it's both. both. It's both. It's both. You, um, it is absolutely both. It's it's um, a lot of a lot of uh, men and women from the West uh, go there with, I think, good intentions. Think that they're going to make a difference because they believe the narrative. They believe that we are changing things for the better in Afghanistan. And then they get there and they see um, the scale, of the corruption, the scale, of the brutality of the Afghan government. I mean. Maybe the Afghan government was a, was not as, as as theatrical in its brutality uh, and it, it, you know it, including its misogyny as the Taliban was, but it certainly was there. They the the the, uh, the Afghan government was just much better at hiding it, right? As well as having the cover and support of the United States and the occupation to you know cover up these things, not discuss these things, as well as 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 a, a primarily pliant international media that went along with the narrative. Now, there certainly are plenty of, of media sources that reported on uh, the corruption, report on the brutality of the Afghan government, the misogyny of the Afghan government, etc. But those stories were, were you know, in between um, just kind of, of, of just rough spots or potholes along an otherwise, you know, super highway of narrative that what the United States is doing in Afghanistan is to rebuild a country in our image, that we are doing good things for the Afghan people, that the Afghan government may have its flaws, but it's really trying. When, you know, again, the, 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 the actuality of it is, is that the United States built a, uh, a government of warlords and drug lords, and the results that, uh, the consequences of that were exactly what you would expect. Um, and so the, yeah, I mean, the, 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 there was, there was the willful ignorance, um, you know, there was the, the sincere ignorance, there was, uh, a degree of, of, uh, of romance to it. Look, one of the, one of the biggest warlords and drug lords in the country is a guy named Gol Aga Shurzai. Shurzai was, uh, the warlord who the Taliban overthrew in Kandahar in 1993, 1994. Um, the origin story of the Taliban, how much of it's true or not, I don't know, but at least the, 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 the myth of it is strong enough and rings true enough that it provided the Afghan, it provided the Taliban with, with a pretty great degree of popular support in the mid-90s, um, was that the, the Taliban rose up, you know, against these warlords to bring uh, justice to the land, to make people feel safe, to protect people's children, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Shurzai being the head warlord in, in, in Kandahar. He's the, he, the United States puts him back in power in Kandahar when we come back in. I mean, so literally the, the person that uh, the Taliban supposedly rose up against, you know, to try and bring about right in their origin story. And, you know, how much is true or not, I'm not sure. But there is a truth to that or an element of truth. And Karzai it's their is truth. 
Yeah, it can Kurzai is the guy. I'm mean, sorry, Shurzai is the guy we put in power. Well, Shurzai, when I'm there in 09, is now in, is now in charge of Nangahar province. He has all his poppy fields in the south. Uh, you know, I could tell you stories about the drugs with him, of course. But you know, he is a warlord. He's a war criminal. He is a thug. Uh, you know, he controls Nangahar, which uh, Nangahar has the most important border crossing um, in terms of uh, economically with uh, uh, Pakistan. Uh, for Afghanistan, um, and also if, if it's not the biggest border crossing, it's the second biggest border crossing in Afghanistan. As everyone knows, Afghanistan is a landlocked country. You kind of get an idea how important border 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 crossings are. Um, he's in charge of that, so he's taking what he wants and needs from that. Um, he is a thug, uh, like I said, and but the 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 romance with him by U.S. diplomats and U.S. generals is that this guy is our Tony Soprano, you know, um, and, and there was, and, and, and this guy Shurzai, who had the dancing boys, the, the, you know, trafficked and, 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 and raped, uh, you know, young boys, this very, he did that very clear, we all knew that, you know, I mean, but he's our Tony Soprano, so there was this, this, romance to that uh, with these figures because they seemed oriental, right? They seemed dangerous. These were men who need, did what they needed to survive and will pal with them because, you know, and basically a very much a ends justifies the means uh, kind of, uh, of, of, of uh, interpretation for what we are doing in Afghanistan. So you have, that's a long way of saying that Along with the willful ignorance and, and some pretty sincere ignorance, uh, you also had an ends justifies the means, a continual rationalization, a continual explanation for what we're doing there that, um, you know, most people, by the time they were done with their uh, nine months, one year, however long in Afghanistan, had seen through, but now they were done with it and they were moving on and going home. I mean, I got that feeling so many times from uh, civilians over there. Uh, except for those who are the true believers or whatever, um, that, you know, let me just get through this. Let me just get done with this, and then I don't have to ever do this again, you know. Um, and, and with the military, what you saw in terms of your, your rationale for being there is the military among officers and among enlisted becomes, let me take care of my guys. Let me, you know, I, I've got it. I, I don't, I don't want to hear about this. I don't want I, I know about this. I don't want to think about this. But... If I don't take care of my guys and gals, who is, right? And so that, that you know, uh, uh, is, is kind of the predominant uh, uh, way that uh, many Americans get through their deployments uh, because the, the corruption and everything, the, 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 the thieving, the looting, <clears throat> the human rights violations, I mean, the human rights violations of the Afghan government were, you know, uh, 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 extravagant. Um, you know, well, let me just get through this, uh, take care of the people around me. And then, you know, with their civilians, they never had to do it again. If they're military, if I get sent back here again, again, it's about taking care of the people around me, about me doing my personal best in a bet, be, me being a moral person in an immoral situation, which I think as most people recognize, that's only going to go so far. Well, well, tell me this. How many officers agreed with your position when you resigned in 2009? Almost everyone. Almost everyone, with the exception of, of uh, the General McChrystal, General Petraeus, and their people around them, um, who, honest to God, I met with a lot of them when I was leaving. And honest to God, they're at it, uh, two of them who were senior people for General McChrystal there. Um, uh, General McChrystal was in charge of, of the Afghan war. 
um, uh, literally their argument to me was like, look, if General McChrystal agree, you know, if, if this was correct, General McChrystal would agree to it and we would be doing it. I mean, there was a cult around these generals that was very real. I mean, I, I, I think people, um, we, we don't want to ascribe to these massive events, to these major historical events, to these, 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 these things that cause death, suffering, life-changing events to millions and millions of people, that there are very personal issues involved, that they're very, oftentimes these, these things can be moved and controlled and... Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Influenced just by the by the singular people that are involved, you know, and and... And you, you saw this with, with um, much of the U.S. military uh, senior leadership, uh, how um, there was a cult that formed around these generals, um, that, that this, this cult of counterinsurgency. And, and then it became like, you know, this idea that, OK, well, we just have to kill harder, you know, when Petraeus takes over. And, you know, any evidence to the contrary, the fact that you can't show where this has been successful, you know, the contortions they go through to say that counterinsurgency has ever worked when it's quite clear it never really has. I mean, the, 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 the examples that these counterinsurgency uh, 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 fanatics or, 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 or adherents uh, go point, koinonistas, yes, thank you. Yeah, the koinonistas that they, you know, they're, they're, the contortions they put themselves through to try and convince people that this worked, you know, I mean, their, their examples are, are incredibly scarce. And those examples usually have major flaws with them or caveats to them or simply it would not apply to these circumstances. So among these people you had, you know, one of the major Koinonese was a guy named John Nagel, who very important in the very important in terms of both the Iraq war and Afghan war in terms of overall strategy and who's talking to the media and who is actually influencing what the U.S. military puts in front of the president in terms of options and what is happening and what should be happening, you know, and, and, you know, his big thing was about Malaysia. Malaysia is the example we should give. The British lost Malaysia, 
know what I mean? Like, you're like you, you just had like even things that are that clear, like the the the, the so getting back to the um, whether this was willful ignorance or not, I, I think you had people who were just charlatans, who were snake oil salesmen, who were in here um, peddling things that um, because they wanted to begin. If you understand warfare, you understand that there have been generations of warfare. You know, first generation warfare, you start with muskets and guys online, right? You know, second generation, third generation, etc. Now we're in the late fourth generation, I guess, or beginning of the fifth. I don't know. Um, I don't care. You know, but but these people do, right? These people do, and they want to be known as the architects of the next generation of warfare, as well as two guys like Betrayus and McChrystal. They want to be the Eisenhowers and uh, 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 Pattons and MacArthur's of their generation. Let's not forget they were. You know, well, I mean, let's not forget like there were members of Congress who put forward for for David Petraeus to have the fifth star. You know, for him to be a general of the armies. As in, I mean, that's real. I mean, there there were there there members of Congress. Was that was that political though? Just so he can have like a transition to a presidency or something like that. There like, was oh, a, a five-star oh, yeah, general. You can, like, yeah, there's a lot of yeah, right. There is a lot of that concern. You know, the idea that there is, I, I think, probably maybe some credence to the idea that uh, Barack Obama appoints David Petraeus director of CIA, so it keeps him out of the 2012 Republican presidency uh, pre presidential race. Right. I mean, you know, there is that idea that he in, in there was. You go back. 12 years or so, there is a lot of talk about Petraeus becoming president, and certainly a fifth star, which would put him in terms of, yeah, that would put him with, the, um, we had, the United States had um, eight or nine five-star generals and admirals in World War II, and those are the only ones we've ever had, you know, um, and, 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 you know, it's the idea that he would be put in the pantheon with the generals and admirals who defeated Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, right, that is... I mean, that, that is, is, is what someone like him has been doing everything his entire life for. Here's a guy who goes to West Point and immediately, or not immediately, but eventually ends up like marrying the, the commandant of West Point's daughter, right? I mean, talk about a guy, I mean, don't tell me that this person did not scheme that. That's exactly who General Petraeus is. I mean, so um, you had this cult. You know, Petraeus is such a great example because Petraeus goes to Iraq with uh, in command of the 101st uh, Air Assault Division, and he's in charge of Mosul um, in the first year of the war. And by the end of their time in Mosul, Petraeus is and his staff are reporting back to you know military headquarters uh, that things are going well in Mosul. There's some rough spots, but for the most part, things are going well. The unit that goes into Mosul after him um, walks into a complete shit show. Terrible. I mean, absolute violence explodes all like. And what basically had been happening was Petraeus had been lying about this, that his people had been cooking the books, fudging the numbers, you know, and reporting that things in Mosul were much better than they were just to show that Petraeus is doing such a great job. Petraeus takes over the training command in Iraq, which is at this point, 04, you know, this is the way the United States is going to get out of Iraq, right, by building up the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police. He takes over this training command. Well, two things happen under his time on the training command. One, um, they, lose a, they lose hundreds of thousands of rifles and pistols. Gone. No accounting for these weapons. Hundreds of thousands of weapons just disappear in Iraq under Petraeus' command. Second thing that happens is that this is also the time where the Iraqi war, the Iraqi civil war, which is a consequence of our actions, but the Iraqi civil war really starts to, 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 uh, to, to spin, right? Really starts to pick up speed. 
Um, and a lot of this, uh, and it becomes not just a civil war, but it becomes a genocidal civil war. And a lot of this is because Petraeus uh, is uh, in, under his command, right? And this is how the Iraqi police and army are being uh, stood up and trained and put out there. Uh, particularly the Iraqi police, um, Shia mil militias really take control of the police units. And that is a major step, a major part of the Iraqi civil war, uh, uh, you know, exasperating, but also becoming genocidal. So, I mean, under Petraeus, this, that's Petraeus' experience going into the fall of 2004. Um, and what we have to remember then that Petraeus in October of 2004, as Bush is running against Kerry for presidency, um, Petraeus writes an op-ed for, oh gosh, the Washington Post, I believe, or the New York Times, I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, basically, if you read this op-ed, you have a, a, a general in Iraq, not just any general, the most famous American general since Norman Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell, and arguably since General Westmoreland in terms of influence, um, Westmoreland being in Vietnam. Petraeus at this point has already been on the cover of Newsweek, uh, I believe twice maybe. One time the cover says, uh, I think it may have only been on the cover once by this point. But anyway, regardless, the cover of the cover of Newsweek says, "Is this the man who can save Iraq?" He's all over the television. He is. He is the media darling. He is a celebrity general. He again, and after the complete catastrophe of his time in Iraq at this point, um, he writes his op-ed uh, uh, endorsing Bush for president for president in '04. So again, not just any general, but the biggest celebrity general um, out there, the one that all Americans know, and we're told this is the man who's going to save Iraq. He basically says we have to you have to vote for Bush in order for us to win this war. Right? Bush wins election and everything. In any other in any other just or sane society, government, military, a person like that would have been removed, would have been fired, would have been court martialed even. Um, for any of those things. Any of those things. What he did in Mosul, what he did in the training command, writing an op-ed and endorsing someone for president. But what happens? Petraeus gets promoted again. He gets put in charge of uh, as commander in chief of, of, of the, the, the war in Iraq. He goes on to command Central Command, so he's in charge of all the United States wars. He then goes on to become director of Central Intelligence. You know, on a, so you, you can. It's a long story, but I think that explains to people that the sycophants were very real. That the cult of celebr of the celebrity generals was incredibly real. That this. Uh, uh, counterinsurgency dogma had a very uh, uh, had 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 almost a, a, a religious type fervor to it, where if you disagreed, you were blasphemous. That this was anathema, as well as too, if you disagreed in any manner, you were outside of the bubble. You were someone who could not be trusted. You were someone who would not be listened to. I mean, remember um, with General McChrystal, Michael, the late Michael Hastings, God, I wish uh, Michael was still with us. Uh, yeah, I wanted know. to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you, uh, have you ever seen a film War, um, War Machine? With, uh, no, I haven't, uh, and there's, a, there's some personal reasons for that, but please go Oh, uh, okay. Um, it's, it is funny. It, I, it is very funny in the way they portray Stanley McChrystal. I've been told that it, it is accurate, like Brad Pitt does a good job. But yeah, talk about uh, Michael Hastings' uh, peace in, in the Rolling Stones and you know what eventually happened to McChrystal and all that stuff. 
But yeah, you know. If, if I could just cut you guys off for just one second, I, I want to be respectful of your time, Matt. I know we booked 12 to 1. We're coming up on one here, and I, I know I, you said I, you had another one. I can go for another 45 minutes or so. Awesome. I just want to keep track of time. Right? We're, we're totally open. Yeah, we do like hour and a half podcast, but whenever yeah. you yeah. got to go, just let us know. Okay, thank J- you. Just wanted to be respectful of your time, that's all. We got a couple of questions that we wanted to ask anyway, so this is great. I yeah. appreciate it. Um, and I awesome. appreciate the ability to tell these stories. Um, I'm, I'm so glad I'm here talking with you guys and not just yammering on about uh, just, I don't know, the, the, the evacuation. And not, not that it's not important, not that it's, it's, it's not dear, not that tragic, but like mm-hmm. I think it's important for people to understand how these wars were filled out, how they were, what they were constructed on, who drove them. How these mm-hmm. things were possible? How did this? That's how we get to this point in um, in Afghanistan. That's that's how we get to this point where you know Joe Biden can really be presented with no options uh, other than pull out of Afghanistan or escalate the war again, right? You know, I mean, there's a lot right. of, of, of you know, this is how we get to this point. But um, so uh, I, you know, with Michael Hastings, you know, he writes that piece um, in Rolling Stone, um, the runaway general about General Stanley McChrystal, um, actually a, uh, a bra- uh, there was some justice involved in all that. And, and um, for me personally, because the man who arranged for that uh, interview for Michael Hastings to be with General McChrystal for weeks at a time, basically, right, to do this, this high profile biopic for Rolling Stone um, was a guy named Duncan Boothby. Um, I know Duncan Boothby because when I resigned and about a month after I resigned the Washington Post uh, wrote a big story on me and I was all over television and media and everything and when that occurred Central Command under David Petraeus hired a strategic communications firm to discredit me they uh, you know basically telling producers I was lying who I was about who I was uh, you know you know just discrediting me in general but also to giving um, media Noticed that if you know, as one time when I interviewed with Dan Rather, um, you know, and I saw the message, the message based from the from this strategic communication period to Dan, to Dan Rather's producers, the message basically is, if this is the kind of guy referring to me that you guys want to deal with, you're not the kind of people we want to deal with, right? Hmm. And then three or four weeks later, after spending three or four hours being interviewed by Dan Rather, probably about three hours after them bringing me up from D.C. to New York for this interview. Uh, you know, after as, as we're doing B-roll on, you know, in Midtown Manhattan, Dan Rather saying to me, um, you know, I know you're right because I've been going to Afghanistan for three decades, you know, so I know you're right. You know, after all of that, uh, you know, and then seeing this message that came in while we were taping, you know, um, uh, you know, if this is the kind of guy you want to work with, you're not the kind of people we want to work with. Three or four weeks later, I'm nowhere to be seen and Dan Rather uh, Dan Rather show. I think it was called Dan Rather Reports at the time. It was on a cable uh, network, you know. But sure enough, uh, Dan Rather's talking to all these generals. Uh, he's over in Afghanistan, right? I mean, like, there, there's there. So there's very real that. And but I know Duncan Boothby <clears throat> because at uh, a Christmas party at the Army Navy Club in Washington D.C. that year, this guy walks up to me. He says, "I just want to introduce yourself because I'm the one who's leading the effort to discredit you to the media." And shakes my hand and everything, and says his name is Duncan Boothby. So Boothby goes on to um, set up Michael Hastings with General McChrystal, and then of course Michael writes a, a, a very honest and straightforward, uh, you know, a telling of what it is like 
to be around Gentleman McChrystal for a few weeks. And it's incredibly unflattering. It, you know, it, it, it shows, I think, just kind of things we were, we were talking about, like the cult of the celebrity general, the refusal to listen to any, any outside voices. Um, I think you see that where, um, you know, if I remember correctly from the Rolling Stone piece, um, he's very dismissive of Biden, doesn't like Biden because Biden didn't agree with him. Biden wanted a counter-terror strategy in Afghanistan, which to show you how petty and insane so much of this is and how much it's so personal, Biden's counterterrorism strategy that he claims was, and he said this a couple of weeks ago when talking about Afghanistan, um, he, which he claims was his opposition to the surge, which is complete bullshit. Um, he didn't oppose the surge. Um, because under Biden's counterterrorism strategy, rather than having 100,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan, there would have been 90,000 U.S. troops. But 10K. even that, right? I mean, difference of 10,000. Mm -hmm. But even that, even that 10,000 difference, just the fact that, you know, uh, Biden was saying send 20,000 troops, McChrystal was saying send 40,000 troops, Obama splits the difference, right? As I think most people would not be surprised, Obama split the difference and went with what's in the middle. Um, you know, uh, sends 30,000 troops December 2009. Even that, if you read that piece, how dismissive uh, uh, McChrystal is of the vice president because the vice president didn't fully agree with him. But then you see how, um, how much they liked Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton, of course, wanted to escalate the war. I mean, Hillary Clinton's never seen a war she didn't want or, I mean, her comments now about what's happening in Afghanistan are, are you know, I mean, some of the best... Uh, 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 comments you could get from a warmonger. Um, but so so the, the Rolling Stone piece, uh, in addition to, to dismissing Biden or being dismissive of Biden, um, it's also uh, General McChrystal is uh, very dismissive of the president of the United States. And to Barack Obama's uh, credit, um, he fired General McChrystal. Um, I don't know if that would happen now. Uh, this, this, is a, this is in the spring of 2010, uh, May or June of 2010. I don't know if that would happen now. I think they're, 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 the, the relationship between civilian and military authorities are, it's very problematic and very dangerous for the American people right now. Um, um, but Barack Obama does fire General McChrystal uh, to assert, you know, civilian control of the authority uh, of the military. I mean, that, that's the, the, that is the system we have and that's the system we should have. I say it's very dangerous right now is because as I just said, you know, Joe Biden is kind of given no option when he comes into uh, uh, the Oval Office about what to do in Afghanistan other than withdraw or, uh, you know, escalate the war. And, you know, I believe he did the right thing, of course, by withdrawing. Um, but um, you have to say, look, the Doha agreement with the Taliban was signed February 2020. You know, I mean, there has been 18 months now since the signing of the agreement and what we're seeing happen in Kabul, when Joe Biden comes into office in January, the United States military has basically refused to continue the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, they refused under Trump, rather than getting all the troops out like Trump kind of wanted to, I believe, you know, before he left office, he had, to, he had to cut that in half, slow that down because the U.S. military refuses. The U.S. military supposedly tells Joe Biden when he asked about meeting the May 1st deadline for getting out of Afghanistan, and presumably he's asking them in January or February that, oh, it's impossible. We can't get it done by then to get these remaining 2,500 troops out of Afghanistan. It's, you know, it's, it's, it, that's too quick of time. It's too, da it's too dangerous. Logistics are too intense. Well, finally, when Joe Biden says we're on May, around May 1st that we're going to get all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, the United States military pretty much does it 
within two months. You know what I mean? So you had this, this thing of like, wait a minute, hang on. I, I thought you guys just a few months ago said it was too dangerous, too difficult to do in a few months. And mm -hmm. now you get it done in two months. And mm -hmm. you're saying things to the media like speed equals safety. I mean, you were flat out lying to the president of the United States then. So and if it was one, I just want to just to make yeah. sure people get that this is not the sole concern. You also have issues just in July. The White House has basically said, and good for them for doing this. I, I, I agree with them. Um, that no drone strikes will occur uh, without approval from the White House, without approval from the Security Council. The U.S. military launched a drone strike in Somalia in July, or maybe beginning of this month, um, that was in direct defiance of that order. They launched a, US, a drone strike without approval from uh, civilian authorities. Hmm. Direct com conflict, you know, direct countermand of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a lawful order from civilian authorities. The Pentagon felt that it didn't need to go by that, that it could it, that it didn't meet the the, 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 Pentagon, the Pentagon felt like it had other reasons that it could follow rather than listen to the civilian authority. You know, and, and hmm. the other point, too, and there are a lot we can go to all kinds of things. But just to give you a third example of why this is dangerous is remember, under Donald Trump, the U.S. military lies to Donald Trump about how many troops it has in Syria. Mm -hmm. Right. And whatever you think about Donald Trump. You know, that's not the issue. The issue is you have the U.S. military disobeying and lying to the elected president of the United States. And if people think we have problems with our democracy now, which we do, it's going to be a lot worse if this trend continues with the U.S. military. But I'm mm -hmm. sorry. Go ahead, Danny. No, I was just going to ask, uh, you know, we, we don't often have, you know, people with military backgrounds on. Uh, but when we do, I always like to ask them from their perspective, you know, how these things pan out like on the ground, you know, from, from your perspective, you know, that two month, you know, estimate and then they're saying that it's very dangerous. Can you talk me through like what are kind of the logistics around pulling out? And maybe you can comment a little bit on the exit date or the exit strategy that we, that we originally telegraphed and that we amended and then amended again. Yeah. Uh, and just tell me like, like from a logistic perspective, from a military perspective, what is the you know, what are the, the pros and cons? What are the drawbacks? Like, what are the things that we have to think about when we're doing something like this? Well, it's massive. I mean, it is massive. Um, both the, the retreat from Afghanistan and from uh, Iraq is, is, is breathtaking in the size of it, you know, and, and in the scope of how much had to be moved, not, not in terms of people, which was also a good amount, but, but the numbers of troops, you know, continually drew down in both countries over the years, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the, 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 the amount of material that had to be removed, material Hardware. that mm -hmm. uh, arrived over time in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, in both Afghanistan and Iraq, most of that material had to be shipped over land. Um, a lot was flown out, but a lot of it, and you're talking major pieces of equipment, you know, uh, tanks, armored, fighter be armored fighting vehicles, artillery pieces, uh, you know, uh, you know, communications equipment. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Anything you can think of, uh, um, you know, had to be moved. And there was so much stuff that just couldn't be moved because there was so much stuff there. So you think about all the, um, all the, uh, all the stuff that we used to cook with, right? right. All the, all the, all <laughs> the, the weight sets, all the gyms, you know. I mean, right. like all that, all the beds, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All the bunks, all those trailers. I mean, like so many. Um, 
you know, so many uh, of the Americans and, and the Westerners that were over there, we lived in these trailers, these what we called shoes, containerized housing units, which are just basically that, like a Connex box, a trailer built out as a little... Uh, a, a little uh, sleeping facility. You know? I, I think they call I, those tiny homes. That, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, that's why I'm not a fan. You know, this idea we're give tiny homes to all these, uh, you know, homeless people. And that's I've lived in a tiny home. That's not. Hey, work. millennials yeah. love this stuff. They, you know what? They, we should just set up Airbnb in like Kabul or something like that, and just you know make this the new destination spot. Yeah. So right. I mean. So, but the. Um, yeah, I, I was actually just saying this to a friend of mine I was having dinner with last night who is still involved with all of this on the civilian side. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I wish that, and maybe there has been, if, if there has and I missed it, if someone could, you know, contact me and let me know, um, a documentary done on particularly like the withdrawal, the retreat from Iraq and what that meant in terms of the logistics, like the scale of it, like how many mm-hmm. trucks we needed to, 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 to to you know, move that stuff out of Iraq overland to Kuwait, you know, and get it back on ships and everything else. Right. The same way too with, with with Afghanistan, you know, everything that had to go back out through Pakistan. The the, the the how many containers was that? What does that look like? At some point, there must have been. There were I know there were marshalling yards for this where things were collected and you know and it, you know we put on trucks and you know is there video of that because. It's staggering how much that is. Um, I was there, and I don't think I have a good understanding of how much there was. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the logistics, it is a massive effort. It is one thing that the U.S. military does do well, um, which is a shame. I mean, I say it's about the U.S. military all the time. Look, we, have, uh, we bring together every year, we bring together young men and young women from all across the, the, the United States. Uh, we put them in, into really, we, we give them training. We give them all kinds of responsibility. We teach them how to do things. Uh, they work with other people they would never have met in their lives. I mean, they're, they're, you know, um, uh, and you know, the end point of it is to kill people, right? Imagine mm-hmm. if we did this for uh, the sake of some aspect of humanity, and you could see that that it could be possible because of yeah, when the logistics, the logistics, and you see what just occurred in Kabul with the evacuation, where you know this is. Uh, I haven't seen any updates today, but as of Friday, uh, the 27th, I think the number of people evacuated was 110,000. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're talking about 110,000 people evacuated from one runway, basically, which is another reason people want to get pissed off, ask what the hell did, I mean, you and I, the United States spent hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions on the Kabul airport, and there's basically only one functional runway there. Um, so, I mean, just not to, you know, people are, are not irate and upset enough. You can go down that rabbit hole of where did right. that money go to, right? But, um, yeah, from one runway in the middle of a city controlled by a victorious enemy, the United States evacuates 110,000 people at least. I mean, with a couple more days of evacuation still to come. I right. mean, the, the scale of it um, is, 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 again, simply uh, 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 awe-inspiring in terms of just the the... the actual movement of people and things now the uh, way it was carried out you know certainly be criticized up and down but i think what was asked of the u.s military and anyone who knows me knows i'm not one to give out a lot of compliments to the u.s military but what was asked of the u.s military in the last uh, couple weeks um, and what they delivered is simply incredible and I, i think the point to be taking from that 
is that we can do things. We have a choice. Look, I mean, I, I, tens of millions of Americans saw video this, 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 these past weeks of American Marines holding babies, giving bottles of water to the babies, you know, mm -hmm. children in the airport, lifting babies up to, to safety or perceived safety, right? Freedom. You know, you got these videos of Marines lifting um, babies over blast wall to the other side, to the airport, symbolizing, you know, out of this crushing crowd of violent, scary, desperate brown people, right? You have the white American Marine lifting this baby to safety over the blast wall to the, you know, everything that behind that represents freedom, liberty, prosperity, apple pie, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? I right. mean, you have that video and tens of millions of Americans have seen that. That is a choice that we have as a country that we can do. We can act as those individual Marines and soldiers were doing. However, our institutions for the last 20 years have chosen to do the exact opposite. And again, when you see something like this airlift in Kabul, you realize that, look, United States military and the United States, if given the right purposes, can actually do things that are of benefit. However, the institutions and those that lead them have chosen so many times, uh, nearly all the time, mm -hmm. not to do that. Right. You know, so, I mean, I, I think that's the takeaway I wish more people would have with this evacuation is that what is possible, particularly as we have very real uh, systemic uh, existential threats, uh, not just to our society, but to the planet, whether, you know, the climate crisis or the pandemic or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I keep coming back to the, the, the timelines and, and the difficulty there. And, and thank you so much for shedding, you know, even more light on you know, how incredibly you know, a uh, Herculean the effort is in order to move all that stuff out. Um, but I keep coming back to this because, you know, we didn't need to give them two months to do it. We could have been drawing down over time, right? We yeah. didn't need to, you know, like yeah. front load all this stuff. And then we also see the opposite side of it, you know, where, okay, we moved 100,000 people, but there's 100,000 more that still need to go. Right. And we moved God knows how many metrics of tons of equipment and hardware out of the country. But there's still millions of metric tons, you know, still in the country that are now uh, obviously in the hands of the Taliban. Um, so, like, what's the deal there? You know, like, why? why well, <laughs> is I, I this, think is, this thing... is like, are we are we saying that we did a good job or are we saying that that we didn't do a good job? Because I kind of see both, you know. Yeah. And I think you can you can see both. And we should. And I think the fact that so much of these wars, like so much else in our society, is dominated by a binary um, uh, discussion, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and more than often, it's, it's it's dominated by team red versus team blue, right? Um, and, yeah, and, I mean, so it, it's possible, right? It's possible for both things to be true. It's possible for the United States to do an amazing job evacuating people and for it still to be completely fucked up, right? I mean, both things <laughs> yeah. are true. I mean, like, it's that duality. I mean, duality is nothing new. I mean, mm -hmm. this is, I mean, the duality has, people in societies have been aware of duality, uh, you know, if, gosh, you know, I mean, this is, this is uh, um, the, the two natures of man, et cetera. That is something that's very real. We've known as a species for, uh, as long as, you know, we've been able to put thought uh, together and mm -hmm. speech together that there is this duality and that plays out in our actions, right? That plays right. out in our events. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this idea that, and of course we could have done things better and we should have done things better. With regards to the Afghan, our Afghan allies. Um, Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. U.S. veterans groups and human rights groups have been jumping up and down, I mean, screaming about this for at least eight years, probably longer. Um, the earliest, uh, I went back and looked it up just to make sure I wasn't crazy, but the earliest uh, thing I found was from the Associated Press in 2013 with U.S. veterans groups saying, hey, we need to get these guys home. We need to bring our, our allies and their families to the United States. I mean, that was eight years ago. I'm, I'm pretty certain you could, uh, it begins in 2011 when Barack Obama uh, announces that the, uh, um, the surge in Afghanistan is ending and we're drawing down troops and we'll be transitioning it over to our Afghan allies to run and win the war. Mm. Um, that, I'm, I'm quite certain that at that point there were veterans groups, human rights groups, refugee groups, et cetera, saying we need to do something about these people. So this is simply not anything that occurred in the last couple months. Um, this is something that um, <clears throat> people have uh, uh, neglected, have obfuscated. Um, certainly under the Trump administration it was harder because I mean, you had, uh, I mean, just their view in terms of any immigration was, uh, you know, they, they weren't going to have it. You know, I mean, with a guy like Stephen Miller in charge, you know, I mean, how were any Afghan refugees going to get here? But mm -hmm. this is something that predates that. This is the problem that goes back to the Obama administration. Right. So certainly, um, why, how come and why, as well as, too, the, um, uh, what happened in the last 18 months? Again, the Doha Agreement was signed between mm -hmm. the Taliban and the United States in February 2020. 18 months occurred between this point. For the most point, um, the Taliban, yeah, they, they had an offensive in 2020 that was was pretty serious offensive. I mean, their their offensives get bigger and bigger every year. That's a good idea understanding why the United States has been losing this war. Every year, the Taliban gets stronger uh, in, in in ways that can be objectively measured and understood. Mm -hmm. Right? They literally shoot more bullets than the year before. Right? They right. have more people shooting bullets than they did the year before. They are bigger and stronger. I mean, right. as well as like all kinds of other ways you could you can look at it. But I mean, so they did. But you know, this year, starting this year, you see this offensive that they launched that was is at least a year, probably longer in the making, um, and which, for the most part, was uh, quite bloodless 
uh, or relatively bloodless. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it was very violent, don't get me wrong, but for what could have been, you have most of these the cities, the provincial capitals, the border crossings, the road networks, et cetera, that Taliban took, there was relatively little fighting, and I use the term relative, um, uh, to compare it to what you've, you might have thought would have happened, what it would have been like, and certainly what the conquest of cities in Afghanistan has looked like in the past. You know, basically, you know, I mean, and so the Taliban certainly utilized this past year and a half, a couple of years to put together an offensive that would bring them victory, uh, victory in this phase of the war. And I want to say this phase of the war, because what occurs next is still unknown. I right. Mean, this could be this could be a cruel piece where the Taliban consolidate power and it's a cruel piece and they have won or United States. And I guarantee you there are people in Washington, D.C. right now who are looking at these warlords that are still opposed to the Afghan to, to, to the Taliban, these warlords that are in Apanshia Valley, to the Hazaras, uh, in their the ones we the put there in the first place. Yes, exactly. That, <laughs> that that they are looking at this and they're saying, you know what, this isn't very different than September tenth, two thousand one, mm -hmm. right, or September eleventh, two thousand one, or September twelfth, two thousand one. Mm -hmm. The Taliban control most of the country. There are these warlords holding out against them. You know, and I guarantee you guys, there are men and women in Washington, D.C. saying, we did it once before, we can do it again, but this time we'll do it better, right? Because uh, that's, that's the hubris that drives nuts. so much of this, right? Nuts. The, um, so, um, yeah, I mean, the, but, but so what did, what did the United States do during these 18 months? What did the Afghan government do during these 18 months? Well, we know the American military dragged its feet quite a bit. I'm under the opinion that the American military was uh, telling the Afghan government that we are not really uh, leaving, um, that you know whoever wins will not re whoever wins in November will not actually pull the, pull us out, um, you know, and so basically kind of sabotaging uh, as well as like giving mixed messages at best to the Afghan government. Again, a, a government, a kleptocratic government, a government a patriot network, a, a, you know, a, pro a business venture basically. Um, you know, so giving them no reason or incentive to pursue negotiations with the Taliban, because that's what's supposed to have had occurred in these last 18 months between, um, you know, between February 2020 and May 2021, when the United States was supposed to pull all its troops out, there was supposed to have been further talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government. And those did not occur. A variety of different reasons. I put most of the blame on the Americans and, and then for not forcing the Afghan government to do more, to, to, to talk more, um, to realize the position they were in. Taliban have been winning this war for at least 12 years, in my opinion. Um, they have had all the leverage. They have all the leverage. And so the idea that somehow be, that the Taliban were not going to do anything, that May 1st, 2021 was going to come around, nothing had been done with the Afghan government, that the Taliban were still just going to sit around and allow that to continue. They weren't going to launch this offensive. They weren't going to win the war mm -hmm. is infantile. And I, I, I think there's a lot of that. The outlook towards these wars in the United States, in London, other places is exactly that infantile. The well, idea that this is uh, the, the, the fact that this is what defeat looks like, that choosing military victory for almost two decades in Afghanistan and then, and then losing as we did and offering no other options, pursuing no other avenues, mm -hmm. uh, not recognizing the reality of what's occurring there. This is what defeat looks like. And the infantile outbursts against it by many Americans is very telling, I think. I mean, I, I, you know, I got a lot of... I, yeah. uh, oh, Danny, you're saying something? 
I was just going to say, I'm with you on that. I was, I was going to ask you about, you know, the, the kind of contradictory stuff that we hear about why, you know, the, the Afghan army was falling. Cause I agree with you. This isn't surprising. I think, uh, as a joke, uh, we did a, uh, an episode a long time ago about Vietnam and we talked briefly about what would happen if, uh, the U S pulled out of Afghanistan and Henry, you know, kind of hyperbolically said, oh, well, you know, if we pull out, then, you know, in three hours, the Taliban will take over Kabul. Uh, and somebody actually listened to that episode and, and gave Henry his appropriate like. Yeah, they were like, like, "Man, you're such a great you you're so great at analysis." And I was like, "Not really. Like, I just <laughs> it's just obvious. A right? handful of smart people, and I kind of just repeat what they say." Um, but I want I wanted to ask you about this. So with the Taliban takeover, I actually got like a lot of uh, shit for saying this. I said the Taliban are being kind of nice about everything right now. Uh huh. Um, as far as the conquest of Afghanistan, it seemed more like a political conquest. And this is kind of like my perception of, of how um, the Taliban are, are uh, gaining power of all these provinces. Is, you know, they're going and they're, they're saying, hey, listen, you know, we're both good Muslims. You know that we should have Sharia. Like, let's just join together or, you know, we'll, we'll kill you. And it's been mainly just kind of like a political conquest rather than some bloody, um, you know, barbarian horde going from village to village like ISIS did Western Iraq, where they're, you know, literally cutting people's heads off and eating organs. Like they seem a lot more crafty and smart about everything uh, than uh, than people are are portraying. You're absolutely right, Henry. I mean, spot on. Um, and, you know, again, the American commentary so poor on this. Uh, you know, and I, I said this in a piece in CNN in May uh, that you know the appropriate analogy is not Saigon 1975. It's Mosul 2014. And I'm saying from perspective of the Taliban, you know, which is something that we never do. We never we we so much American commentary portrays the Taliban, the Iraqi insurgency, you know, the Assad government in Syria, et cetera, et cetera. All that, all committed atrocities, of course, um, you know, all not nice, but we have portray them as if they're the um, uh, the Muslims, com- it's just the, yeah, mu- the Muslims. That's kind yeah, of yeah, and as if, yeah, they, they, with, with all the nuance of a comic book character, hmm. you know, I, I won't even say a superhero movie character because I think that the portrayal of, of villains in, in, in superhero movies, Marvel or whatever, is more complex than the, our understanding of, of the people we've been fighting in these wars for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so Mosul 2014 through 2017 was the more appropriate um, example than Saigon, you know, in terms of the Taliban perspective. That's not what the Taliban wanted. They knew exactly that if they took uh, Afghanistan, the cities of Afghanistan, including the comp- capital, the way that the Islamic State did in 2013 you know, through 2017, when they controlled those, those cities, um, the result was going to be the same. The American Air Force and American Navy were going to level every city, and that's what they would have. And then not only that, they would have lost all popular support, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they did exactly like you described, Henry. They, they, they recognized that. They also remembered that, uh, you know, when I, when, I was, when I was over there and I would ask people, how did the Taliban, you know, everyone hates the Taliban. Well, how come they, they, they took power so so quickly and so easily in the 90s. I mean, they did some fighting and they were good at it, but you know, it seemed like in the 90s, same thing too. Entire regions, cities just turned over to them. And the explanation to me was the Pakistani rupee. You know, that's what they used to fight, the Pakistani rupee. 
Um, and, you know, so certainly the Taliban understood that and they did exactly as you described. They, they said, uh, you know, you know, you have a choice. You can either work with us or we can, you know, you can fight us. And if you work with us, here are the benefits, you know, and you've seen that where the Taliban have put into power and keeping in power many people who were in serious positions of power in the Afghan government. You know what I mean? So basically just just switching allegiances. Um, the uh, uh, you know and, and and the Taliban um, also too for for most of the last twenty years it was correct to say that the Taliban were a Pashtun movement ninety five percent Pashtun or whatever Pashtuns being the plurality of Afghanistan one of um, I think there are I think the Afghan Constitution recognizes thirteen different ethnicities in Afghanistan mm-hmm. um, but you know I mean. It, Many more, obviously, but, you know, Pashtuns being the plurality. And, you know, so much of this war has been a U.S. divide and conquer strategy where the Pashtuns have felt that they are on the wrong side of that divide and conquer strategy, which I agree with them. Um, And so you could up until this past year or so, you would say that the Taliban were a primarily Pashtun movement, 95 percent Pashtun or something like that. say. Um, And um, but what you've seen is you have seen. Um, many elements of Afghan society that are not Pashtun join the Taliban. Oh, no, I shouldn't say join. Um, work with the Taliban or passively support the Taliban. Not card-carrying members, but also not going to support the government anymore. We're mm-hmm. going to step out of the way and let you guys come through. You're not going to get, you know, if you got, if everyone recalls in June and July, American media was flush with all these videos coming from Afghanistan of all these popular resistance movements that were standing up to fight the Taliban. It was all bullshit. It was all propaganda. It was all getting people together, giving them weapons, paying them some money, and them filming them. You know, and then they went home. I mean, that, that. But that's the level of the war. That's the reality of how much this war has been. You know, so with with regards to say, uh, you know, so what we did, you know, is in 2001, we take out of power a theocratic repressive government, put in power a kleptocratic repressive government, both of which have preyed on the people, in different ways, but have preyed on the people. And now at this point. It is untenable uh, that this this kleptocratic repressive government is so predatory, so brutal that people who are not from the traditional populace or 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 or, or, or um, constituency of the Taliban, uh, and remember the, these are this is a, a forty plus year long civil war, so there's a lot of enmity, a lot of of revenge, a lot of of trauma, a lot of memories. People are saying, you know what? As bad as the Taliban are, maybe they are a better solution right now than this predatory government of warlords that, that we have. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you've seen that switch as well, not just the people who have gone over to the Taliban and work with them, but I think also among the population in a passive manner. Again, they're not they're not signing, you know, uh, they're not signing union cards with the Taliban or anything like that. But, you know, in a passive manner saying at this point, the Taliban are preferable and of course, that runs completely counter narrative to American narratives of the war. It's impossible, basically, under American narratives of the war for something like this to happen because it, this has basically been a Manichaean, uh, at least in terms of the message, a Manichaean struggle of good versus evil. So, how is this possible that people are actually, uh, even if it's passive support, supporting the Taliban? So, you, you have this. I think that's why you've seen some of the hysteria you have seen in the American media among Americans. Oh, it's terrible. Right. Mm-hmm. Because the, the narrative has so been destroyed. And then you see other things, too, with, the, say, the um, 
if people if people struggle with uh, uh, the idea of manufacturing consent, you know, I mean, the great phrase that most of us know from Noam Chomsky about how the media manufactured consent. I think looking at CNN's coverage of uh, the the last couple of weeks in Kabul is exactly how best to understand manufacturing consent. Seeing how Clarissa Ward covered the Taliban capture of the city and 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 and, and, and their victory. Um, I mean, everything was done, was, was presented in a way to show it as this doomsday event, to, sh- to, to, to prove all the narratives of the Taliban correct. The, you know, I mean, so she is dressed completely in black, very strict Islamic garb, only her face is showing. Um, you know, the point even that, that they, CNN publishes video where Clisser Ward says the Taliban are chanting death to America. And, you know, uh, Af- Af- Afghans, you know, and others who speak, uh, who speak uh, uh, Dari or Pashto, I'm not sure which one they were chanting and probably in Pashto, I would assume. I don't know. Who knows? But, but they're saying basically they were not chanting death to America. They were chanting other things, but it was not death to America or anything similar. You mean, so you had that manufacturing consent. And then, you know, with Clarissa Ward, blonde hair, blue eyed, well, you know, you tune, on, tune into Al Jazeera English and you've got Charlotte Bellis, also blonde hair, blue eyed. Charlotte Bellis, who is wearing just basically a scarf over her head. Her blonde hair is spilling out all over the place. She's wearing the same clothing she was wearing. She's always worn in Kabul, hasn't changed her clothes at all. Just wearing a shirt and pants, basically. And she is walking around freely. She was the first person the Taliban called on in their first press conference. You contrast what Charlotte Bellis is reporting and how she is reporting to what Clarissa Ward and CNN are reporting. And I think you get a really good understanding for how manufacturing consent works. The one thing I know you guys brought up and, and I've, I've been yammering on about these things, but the, um, uh, with the Afghan government and the Afghan army, their collapse, Absolutely. It built a house of cards. I mean, has anyone seen a house of cards ever collapse in any other manner mm-hmm. than, you know, right? I mean, rapid. You had a, uh, it reminds me of what Patrick Coburn said about the Iraqi army in 2014. The Iraqi army was not an army. It was a business venture. And that's exactly what the Afghan army, and, and, and it makes sense. I mean, it's the same military. I mean, these militaries were built by the same power. And if you get anything even farther detail about it, if you want to get, get into like the minds of those who created this, uh, 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 who created this government, who created this uh, American ec- exercise and experiment in Afghanistan, which is, we go back 15 years, 2004, 2003, 2005, this was the American experiment in democracy or democracy's experiment in the Muslim world, right? This, was a, this is a proof of concept for so many American neoconservatives. But you have to remember that the American empire is built on extraction, right? Why do we have empires? Well, to extract from others. I mean, George Kennan says it best back in 1947 or 48. The United States, after World War II, United States has more than half the world's wealth, and we have less than 5% of the world's population. The goal of every successive presidential administration will be to maintain that inequality. I mean, this is the purpose of empire. So I think when you go into a country and try and rebuild it to do nation building, it's going to look like you looked, right? So you're going to build this extractive government. Which is, you know, again, you're putting warlords and drug lords in power. The Afghan army, um, yeah, people are probably familiar now, supposedly 350,000 strong, anywhere from 100,000 to 200,000 of those were ghost soldiers, meaning they were just padding on the payroll. They didn't exist. They were just names on a list to, for commanders to get more pay. Um, you know, so what happens is you've got a, 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 a system like that, a, a, a machine like that, 
where um, it, it is a business making venture where people are, are solely doing it to make money for the most part. Not to say that there weren't some Afghans in that military that were fighting and did fight uh, because they believed in what they were doing. But the bulk of it, the way it was constructed, was constructed in this way that as soon as the money runs out or the threat of money runs out, it's going to fall apart. Look, Afghanistan, 70% of Afghans live on less than $1 a day. 90% live on less than $2 a day. When the Afghan police and the Afghan military are paying $150 to $200 a month, men are going to join that, and women, there were some, some women in these things, uh, are going to join that because their families need the money to survive. Right. When that money stops showing up, they're not going to continue fighting. They're going to walk away. I mean, there, you know, I mean, so the the the, the, the transactional the, relationship. It's transactional, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and you had that as soon as, you know, and we hear we hear it wasn't even that the Afghan army wasn't being paid these last few months that they weren't even being fed, that nothing was showing up to them. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, so uh, you know, it's very understandable when you understand um, how this government and military was created, how it functioned and what the purposes of it were, as well as who we populated it with. I mean, you gotta remember that the, 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 secret, the Secretary of Defense, the Minister of Defense for Afghanistan for many years under Hamid Karzai was uh, a guy named Marshal Fahim. Marshal Fahim was the biggest drug lord in Northern Afghanistan, you know? And we gave this man helicopters and airplanes. What do you think he did with it, those? He didn't use those to fight the Taliban, he used those to ferry drugs, you know? I mean, so we knew this. I mean, this was a man that as Minister of Defense, and you can look this up, the New York Times did a huge story on this in like 2007 or 2008. As Minister of Defense, um, the United States government, because he was a war criminal, an acknowledged drug lord and everything, the U.S. government could not directly interact with him. But this was the person we were okay with being the Minister of Defense. Hmm. I mean, right, so this is the whole, the whole thing. It, it's, you know, it, when you understand how uh, uh, it was constructed, the way it was constructed, the way it was upheld, who populated it. I think the question, the accurate question is like, how did it last this long? You know, I think mm -hmm. that's a good, you know, how did it last this long? <laughs> so maybe we can uh, end with our last couple of minutes here. Uh, and, and by the way, I just want to, again, thank you for this. This has been super fun. Um, but maybe we can talk uh, like a fun hypothetical situation, you know, uh, so yep. let's say let's say we have the ability to send you back in time, right? Like we gathered four time crystals and you know lets us open up a portal to the past, <laughs> and and let's also say that we gave you the ability to directly influence the course of history. I'm wondering, like, how would you change it on the Afghanistan war? I mean, other than the obvious, just straight up avoiding it. Um, you know, what would you do different if you were Obama or if you could, you know? sway Obama or Trump or Biden or, or anyone else, you know, that, that was involved in this? What, what's your, what's your play? You know, I, I think it's, it's acknowledged that this hasn't worked, acknowledge that um, it's not going to work and that there are other options. So again, the, the Taliban, I said earlier, you know, the discussion, the Taliban are willing to negotiate. I mean, this is, it's clear. Uh, 2016, people can go back and look, December, 2016, the New York Times runs a huge story. <clears throat> Um, uh, where basically breaks the story that the Norwegians in 2007, 2008 had been meeting with Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban. Supposedly, according to the West, according to Western intelligence and all the serious thinkers, Mullah Omar had never met with anyone who wasn't from who was from the West. This mm -hmm. story completely shows it shows just one more example of how these people don't know what they're talking about. But anyway, the Norwegians 
um, got to the point uh, by the end of 2008 or so that the Taliban had agreed to a, a peace settlement. And, um, you know, it was basically, uh, that was basically flushed uh, because the Americans wanted victory. I mean, so, I, I, and all kinds of things like that occurred. The, 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 a lot of discussion right now, uh, thankfully, about how the Taliban offered to surrender in 2001. I mean, Rumsfeld acknowledging that. So this is not revisionist, as some people in D.C. are saying. It's not. This was reported at the time. You know, by you know, by the major American media, the same major American media that has cheerled for these wars. So, anytime, this is why I have a subscription to the New York Times, um, because they actually do sometimes publish things and report things that are really important because it runs so counter narrative. It's so counter to the narrative that their own editorial board publishes and promotes. You know, you have this reporting sometimes that is really great reporting. Um, you know, and, and, and that's the best counterfactual, I think, when you can cite a source like the Times or the Washington Post that has been, again, cheerleaders for this, these wars for the most part, when their own reporting demolishes that cheerleading. But, I mean, so you do, you have this, this acknowledgement that, yeah, there were opportunities to do this. So I think that would be it. I mean, I, 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 I think understanding that the United States military in these wars uh, military occupation, the idea of, of victory, of using proxy forces, because that's the way the United States, particularly under since Barack Obama, has been waging these wars. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, through proxy forces, using CIA special operations drones, which are all secret, right, classified. That means that the United States government doesn't even have to lie about uh, what we're doing, say, in Africa or in Yemen or in Syria or whatever. Because there's your secret activities. So by the United States government actually has an obligation not to talk about them. You know, um, using contractors. Uh, I don't think many, most people know that. You know, I think many people are familiar with 7,000 Americans killed in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, not so many people familiar with the, with the uh, figure that 8,000 contractors have been killed in these wars. Mm -hmm. These contractors doing jobs that in previous wars, they would have been wearing military uniforms, but because we've privatized warfare, outsourced it, contractors were doing those jobs and they were killed. So the actual total of killed in, in these wars is not 7,000, it's really like 15,000. And then you add in the suicides of combat veterans, right. you know, just combat veterans alone, you're looking at more than 10,000 suicides probably. Right. So you really, the, the cost of these wars in terms of American debt are about 25,000, not 7,000. So, but anyway, the idea of using these proxy forces, especially because proxies, you know, if brown people are killing brown people, black people are killing black people, the United States media not really going to report on that. You know, when there's mass atrocity, they will, but for the most part, they won't, you know, American politicians won't care and the American public won't notice. MSNBC went a full year without covering Yemen, or yeah. a year and a half, or something like that. Something, something like that. Ridiculous. Yeah. Meanwhile, she covered. I remember these report this this stuff. She they they talked about Stormy Daniels like I forget some crazy percentage of the time, right? I mean, I mean, I mean the um, uh, you know, so and they do they do talk about what is occurring there. It's under the framework of. You know, these black people have always been killing each other. These brown people, they've been fighting oh, for yeah. centuries, right? I mean, is that, is that a complete, which is completely untrue. But, oh, when I Obama mean, so, said that the Sunni Shia was a, was a, a thousand-year war that was just continuing on today, and that was yeah. his level of understanding of the region, like, they've been fighting forever. Exactly, exactly. You know, what do you expect of those people, right? There's a racist element to these wars that, I don't think is, is properly understood. And it's one thing that 
can really help people understand how the, our, the United States wars overseas are mirrored in what you would call the wars here at home, right? The war on drugs, uh, you know, especially, say, mm -hmm. mass incarceration. There are very real linkages between, you know, in the you know, particularly when you understand the philosophies that underlie these policies and these strategies. So, uh, you know, getting back to it, though, is it recognizing that, look, we're not, this is not causing us to win. This is causing chaos. This is causing instability. Mm -hmm. This is actually, we invading and occupying Afghanistan, we go into Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda is 400 people at most, at most, 400 people total, at most, around the world on September 12, 2001. They just lost 19 of them the day before. You know, um, Al-Qaeda over the last 20 years, has grown to have tens and tens of thousands of direct members, let alone how many hundreds of thousands of people who have supported them from afar or, or passively or just indirectly. Be brands. Um, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. and not only that, they have controlled entire cities and regions. They still control Idlib uh, province in Syria. Right? I mean, so the idea that somehow these wars were successful you know, I mean, another another number to, to you know, is, is that in 2001, the U.S. government says there are four international terrorist groups or organizations in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And now the United States government says there are 20 such groups. Hmm. So the consequences of these wars, uh, as you know, not just Afghanistan, but say our policies in Pakistan with regards to Pakistan have led to a fivefold increase in terror groups. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and not just in that region, but you look at AFRICOM, United States in 2008 stands up Africa Command, you know, is going to give Africa its own U.S. military presence, attention, you know, you're going to put a four-star general in charge of it and all the accruements that go around it, you know, so um, in 2008 in Africa, there were about 300 terror attacks uh, uh, in, in that year. In 2020, there were almost 5,000 terror attacks in Africa. 12 years after Africa Command stood up. Yikes. I know there's some there's somebody out there right now. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm gonna be nice. Who is gonna say who's saying right now? Well, call, you know, correlation is not causation. Like, give me a break. You give me a fucking break. You know, I mean, when we know that. Um, Look, when I resigned, I don't know why it happened. If it had any any you know, I don't know. But in September. Who knows? In September of 2009, when I resigned, someone in the U.S. intelligence community leaked the document. You can still find this now. Is Boston Globe wrote about this uh, for, in September 2009 that U.S. intelligence understood that 90% of the Taliban were fighting the United States not because they were inspired religiously, that they were on some kind of great jihadist journey, but simply because they were occupied by a foreign power, 90% of the Taliban. Hmm. I could tell you the same exact thing. I saw the intelligence in Iraq, used to read it, you know, as well as this was written about as well around 2008 or so, some folks wrote about this, that uh, the Iraqi insurgency, 95% of the Iraqi insurgency was nationalist. It was because of being occupied. Uh, and we know this too, the, the um, United Nations did a study of African uh, militant groups, you know, what we call jihadist groups, you know. Um, this was a few years ago, and this big study, really well done by the United Nations, finds that about 75%, at least 75% of those who join militia groups in Africa, insurgency groups, are doing so uh, as a result of violence afflicted upon 
their families or their friends by foreign forces or by the proxy governments or groups that are backed by foreign forces. There's a very real cause and effect here. So getting back to your, I'm in my time machine or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, that would be it. We'll be recognizing that the, the fuel that is causing this instability, this destruction, the, uh, the uh, uh, pushing, the, the thing that is pushing people into these insurgencies is, you know, the U.S. foreign presence is the U.S. war on terror, is the support of proxy. I mean, look at, look at, um, look at Egypt. I mean, Amin Zawahiri, who is the number two in Al-Qaeda, who is still, or actually the number one since we killed bin Laden in 2011, who has never been caught, who most people who understand Al-Qaeda would say, yeah, you know, bin Laden was the front guy. You know, he had been very charismatic, had a presence to him. You know, he was, he was the number one. But the brains behind the scene was Zawahiri. You know, he, why, why does he join Al-Qaeda? Because the um, Egyptian government that the United States supports, you know, brutally suppresses people like him, jails them, tortures him to the point that it causes a man like Zawahiri to make his life's work revenge against, uh, you know, the, the, um, those who are doing such things. And the best way to get revenge against the, like, the Egyptian government is to go after those who are keeping up and supporting and propping up the Egyptian government. I mean, so the blowback in all this, whether it's direct or indirect, you know, that that's what I would address. Interesting. Well, I really appreciate all that. Um, Henry, do you have any more questions before we? I mean, cut? I certainly do. But um, in the <laughs> in the uh, spirit of time, I know you have some other interviews lined up later today, but we could obviously talk to you for several more hours. Um, <laughs> we we yeah. hope to have you on uh, the show again uh, soon. Uh, this has been this has been a great uh, this has been a great episode and, uh, you know, thank you for, for coming on and, and, uh, sharing all this. I think it's gonna be really valuable for everyone. Um, maybe one last thing. I, I know that you've been vocal and, and, uh, and supportive of, of, uh, you know, veterans who are having a hard time. And, um, you know, I know a lot of veterans are, are, um, kind of, uh, what would you say to a veteran who's listening right now who's just like having having struggles or, or issues right now? Because I just know that you've been that's something that that's important to you. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, for people, just this people understand. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I have traumatic brain injury. I have, uh, I have issues with severe, serious alcohol issues. I have post-traumatic stress disorder. I have uh, moral injury, uh, you know, also what's called perpetration induced traumatic stress. I deal with depression because of those things. I deal with anger because of those things. Uh, look, my TBI was so bad, I wasn't able to earn a paycheck for five years. Like, you know, my relate, my marriage, uh, the woman who I thought was, you know, the woman who I wanted to be with me when I died, you know, the last thing I wanted to see on this earth was her. Um, destroyed that relationship, you know, destroy. I mean, like, so I, I am a cons- I am a living consequence of these wars, you know. Um, and I say that to let other people know that. I, I've been there and I am there. And the one thing I will say to anyone who is going through that is if you're thinking about it at all, then you need help. If it has, I mean, first of all, if someone says to you or you've done something, it's caused an event that has caused a problem, you definitely need help. But if you've even gotten to the point in your head where for just for a second, the thought flashed in your head that I need help, then you need help. And you have to get professional help. That is the one thing I will say, I will always say, you cannot do this on your own. You cannot do this with your friends. You cannot certainly do this with a bottle, you know, um, but you, you know, or a needle. 
um, you need professional help. And that is, that is, I'll, I'll leave it at that for the sake of time. Um, people can contact me. Um, I'm on Twitter, Matthew P. Ho, P as in Patrick. I've got a website, MatthewHo.com. Um, you know, my web, my email's on there, uh, you know, and, and, and saying this for like, yeah, if you guys need help, if someone wants to talk, advice, suggestions, please. And I say this also to the family and friends. So many guys are alive. Hey, the reason why I don't, I, I, I never put that gun in my mouth and blew my head, blew the back of my head off was simply because there was a woman who loved me, who got me into treatment and many professionals who helped me. That's it. If not for them, I would be dead by my own hand, right? I would have killed myself. So, so if you're out there listening and you have someone you love who is going through this, feel free to contact me, call the Veterans Crisis Line, call the VA, find other resources. There are a lot of people out there who can help. And if you get into help, there is, the evidence is there that if you get into help, you have a much, much greater chance of survival than if you don't. The, the, we, we, we know this. We, veterans who are in healthcare who are receiving treatment are much less likely to blow the back of their heads off than guys who are not getting treatment. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for this. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully do this again soon. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Anytime. And, and, and thank you for, um, you know, thank you for running this kind of podcast, you know, um, you know, and, and long form and talking about, you guys, maybe you're not seeing it now, but you and, and others who are doing this type of, of journalism, um, you're making a difference. And it may not be obvious for another 10 or 20 years, but this type of discussion, this type of information, um, this is making a difference and will make a difference. So thank you for what you're doing. Thanks. Oh, well, we appreciate that. And uh, we're just two guys we're trying. doing our doing our best <laughs> we're, we're trying to basically mask a kind of uh funny oh bro history is, is this what is this drunk history and then uh, yeah <laughs> kind of put the that's, red the, that's what i thought when, when you guys contacted me i was like all right you know i mean but yeah um certainly certainly yeah, yeah. all right all right uh see you next week guys peace Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.